This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. There once was a village high up on a hill. When it was first founded, it was just a few families who found the most beautiful place they could possibly live. It overlooked a valley below. The views were gorgeous. Being up on the hill, they felt safe. They could see for miles. The soil was rich. They could grow all the food they needed. And as each of the families grew, so did the village. And as the village grew, so did a problem. Being up on a hill, they had no source of water. This wasn't a very big problem in the beginning. There wasn't that many people. They could catch rainfall and take advantage of it. But as the village grew and grew, with more mouths and more plants needed to grow, this water problem became more and more frightening. Fortunately for our village, down in the valley was a beautiful river crystal clear water, perfect for drinking. The villagers decided they would pay someone to get that water and bring it up to the top of the hill. They posted flyers down in the village square. This is before Facebook, you know. And two men stepped forward. There was Big John. Big John was known in the village to be just about the strongest man you'd ever seen. Big John knew, with a couple buckets on his shoulders, a couple more around his arm, he could get at least 20 gallons to the top of the village. Back and forth, back and forth, a dollar a gallon. Back then, a dollar was worth a lot more. $20 every half hour, that was $40 an hour. Big John was gonna be rich. The second villager to answer the flyer was named Claudius. He didn't show up with any buckets. Instead, he unrolled some drawings, some plans, spread them out on the table, explained to the villagers what he had in mind. Few people looked at him funny. Others said, hmm, I don't know if this will ever work. But they said, give it a shot. We can never have enough water. And so Claudius went on his way. Back and forth, day by day, Big John brought buckets and buckets of water. Every day, $20 a trip. Things were really starting to add up. The villagers, on the other hand, had no idea where Claudius was. They hadn't seen him in a month or two. But out on the horizon, they started noticing something. Slowly, creeping up from the valley below, was a pipeline. And there was Claudius, day by day, adding a length to the pipeline. Big John couldn't understand. 
Every day that went by, Big John was putting about $100 in his pocket. He was making a killing. Meanwhile, Claudius was making nothing, month after month. About a year went by. Big John had lots of money in the bank, but his body was tired. Winter was coming. He wasn't sure how he was going to be able to make these trips in the cold. Just about that time, Claudius's pipeline reached the village gates. All the villagers gathered around. They were curious. He had spent a year of his life. He hadn't made a single dollar. Was it wasted? Was it all for nothing? Claudius stepped over to his pipeline. He grabbed a hold of a big valve and he twisted it. And nothing happened. The villagers stood around quiet at first. Then a couple chuckles, a couple shakes of the head. Just as people were starting to walk away and the crowd was beginning to dissipate, the first few drops. It's just a trickle. And then it turned into a stream. Gallon after gallon of water came pouring through the pipeline. Every gallon, another dollar into Claudius's pocket. It took about two months' time for Claudius to make more money than Big John had all year. And by the end of the following year, well, Claudius owned the village. He was a good man. He invested his wealth back into the village. He even offered Big John a desk job. His body was getting old and he couldn't carry the buckets anymore. The village has really prospered since the days of Claudius. If you're ever in the area, stop in and have a drink. We learn a very important lesson from the village on the hill. Sometimes the most obvious way to solve a problem is not the best way. And if we take a hard look at our own life, we might find that like our guest in today's episode, we could change the way we're doing things, design a different system for solving our problems, and get more out of our life, more of what we actually want to, time with our family, on our own beautiful properties, providing for ourselves. Does that sound like something you're interested in? Cozy up. It's time for another episode of Homesteady. The world that we live in is a crazy place. But you and me, we can each make it a little better. We can live a more sustainable life. We can become more self-sufficient. We can get more connected with the planet around us. And we can do all of this together. So everybody, cozy up. It's time for another episode of Homesteady. It's January, and that means a lot of us are thinking about how we're going to make this year amazing. And I know, because we did a survey back at our website, that a lot of you are planning on starting a homestead business. And so we thought we'd help you get off to the right foot by doing a series all about homestead businesses. This is part two of a 10-part series. If you missed the last episode, go back and listen to it. It's called Why Your Homestead Business Will Fail. Today's episode is going to help you take a hard look at how you're currently living your life and see whether or not you're hauling buckets or building pipelines. This homestead business series is focused on homesteads who are currently running a business that is a side hustle, not their full-time job. Are you ready to learn from today's guest, a police officer turned farmer? Let's go, Jet Setters. We're headed to North Idaho. There we find Dan Omen and his wife on the grass-fed homestead. How are they stacking paper? Lamb and pastured poultry. Now remember the rules. This has to be a side hustle or just one of the two doing it for work. How much are they making from this side project? Right now, his annual gross income, he estimates about $2,250. 
As with many of our guests, Dan did not grow up farming, and in fact, his story starts long before him and his wife moved to the farm. My wife and I have one son, and a lot of what led us in this direction came from uh, my son coming into the world. We were living in an HOA-regulated subdivision in a suburb of Atlanta for a long time, and I was in law enforcement. I was a detective for the local police department, and my wife was in the, she still is, my wife is in the software industry. My wife and I were both very career-oriented. We were very passionate in the careers we had. So having a family wasn't really part of the plan. We wanted to travel. Sometimes things happen (laughs) for a reason. Things work out uh, differently than we planned, and uh, we were blessed with our son very soon after. Any of you listeners who have had the most amazing surprise you can ever imagine in life happen to you can understand what Dan's saying. This happened to me and my wife. It was just before our first anniversary. We were going away to have a romantic first year celebration when we found out that we too were having a surprise, the biggest one we'd ever be given in our life, a child. After spending the weekend at a couple's only sexy retreat, with my wife feeling nauseous the entire time. Me all alone in the heart-shaped jacuzzi. (laughs) Stew on that one for a minute. We came home and began down the path that lots of soon-to-be parents do. This huge change is thrust on you. We were a young couple. The biggest question we had to answer was where we were going out to eat that night. And suddenly, we were worried about keeping a tiny human alive. And as you start to think about how you're gonna keep this little bundle of fragileness breathing there's lots of rabbit holes the new parent begins diving into leading up to the birth of my son i kind of had this uh, awakening if you will where i realized that i needed to start taking a lot more responsibility for our resources in particular food I just had this growing sense of, of responsibility in, in so many areas. Just the idea of being a new father and everything, a lot of things are changing in me. And I started researching on how I can increase our food security and self-sufficiency. And that led me down this path, learning about conventional agriculture. And I realized very quickly that conventional agriculture wasn't really the answer, isn't really what I was looking for. I found a lot of uh, options for, you know, people advocating just bulk food storage, you know, lots of dry food and freeze-dried stuff. And and that didn't really seem very appealing to me either. I wanted, you know, a a real food. I wanted something that was sustainable, something that would regenerate itself, something that we could keep doing, not just have a bunch of stuff in storage. This is the never-ending debate, prepper versus homesteader. What is a better way to spend your time, money, and energy when it comes to providing for your family through tough times? Should you A, go the prepper route, get a bunch of supplies, freeze-dried foods, medical equipment, guns, beans, bullets, band-aids, or Should you focus on creating systems on your property that produce their own goods every year? Growing plants for food, for fuel, even for medical purposes. Raising livestock that will reproduce year after year. More animals, more eggs, more meat. What is a better way to provide for your family through tough times? For Dan, the answer was clear. So I, I continued my exploration further and found this concept called permaculture, which really, really changed things for me. It was basically this design science that, um, and it's a decision-making process as well, where you design systems that are sustainable using the natural resources that are available and getting the different elements within your sustainable system to work together to basically feed each other and to really minimize entropy. Uh, to minimize entropy. I took Jeff Lawton's 
online permaculture design course that he launched in 2013. This was the first one he ever did. And Jeff Lawton is probably the world's most renowned permaculture instructor. But he also was a surfer. I started surfing in the west country of England and went on a few winter surf trips to get away from the English winter. And I met a lot of Australians. I came over here to visit friends and ended up staying. I had these dreams of self-sufficiency and living in a harmonious way with natural systems. So I was curious about permaculture and I started to get involved and not realizing it was also a very early beginning for permaculture here in Australia. So I was one of the first people to get involved in early courses and it just went on and on from there. And by went on and on, what Jeff Lawton means is that after a long time working with the early creators of the permaculture design system, Jeff became one of the most well-known instructors himself. I, I, I live more or less with the sun myself. I get up at first light and I work with the students and interns where we share all the, all the jobs on the farm. This farm produces people, so we allow the students and interns to experience what they need to, to understand. The primary goal of permaculture is to provide a permanence of culture on the earth for people and all living things. When you engage in this, it becomes really interesting. Dan took You're Jeff's online permaculture design course. And this was a paradigm shifting experience. It took me from a very conventional mindset where, you know, I was just accepting fact as what we've always been told. And this permaculture system teaches you to think a dramatically different way where you start um, analyzing things different, looking for pattern recognition um, and, and really questioning conventional systems and getting back to the way things have been done for thousands of years before our modern uh, improvements have been made. And I put air quotes around the word. <laughs> now, if you're asking yourself, what is permaculture? Well, I have a nice vague answer for that. Permaculture. This is a word that you have heard on our podcast. You've probably heard it on YouTube videos. Permaculture. 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 It's one of those words that you hear a lot in this homesteading world. People use it all the time. But a lot of those same people have a hard time explaining what it is simply. How do I know? Well, I went on YouTube to try to find a video that would explain it simply. And I found of permaculture, which when unpacked provides us with a solid toolkit for not only tackling the difficult environmental challenges ahead, but also for thriving in a transformed world. Okay, so there was that. 10 points for the jazz music. Many people think of permaculture as gardening, but that's a lot like thinking of math as being only good for building bridges. So permaculture is not the misapplication of math? It's the harmonious integration of landscape and people, providing for their food, energy, shelter, and other material and non-material needs in a sustainable way. Uh, can we just get a straight answer? What the heck is permaculture? The term permaculture is a mesh of words permanent and agriculture. And by permanent agriculture, I mean self-sustaining agriculture. All right, here's my attempt. After watching about 30 minutes worth of two-minute YouTube videos that still had me confused, here is what I think people mean when they say permaculture. Ready? <clears throat> Cue the jazz music. Permaculture is a system that is used for designing things. Nope, okay. Permaculture, the fundamental, <clears throat> the fundamental, this process based off of the way we see, so, this process, <clears throat> this process starts with the act of biomimicry. It's like that car that is shaped like a fish so it gets good gas mileage. When you look at the tree's leaves and also the root system, it's so similar. Uh, 
to your circulatory system. I don't... Oh, man. No, this is really hard. How do you explain permaculture? It's like the internet. We all use that word. We all talk about going on the internet or downloading something from the internet. But if I ask you right now, how does the internet work? You'd be like, hold on, let me Google it. Permaculture is a system of agricultural and social design principles centered around simulating or directly utilizing the patterns and features observed in natural ecosystems. Boom! Wikipedia. Thank you, Internet. Dan found this system, this way of reshaping his life, where he would be less dependent on a job, less dependent on a boss, a career, and more dependent off his own land that he and his family lived on. That appealed to him. I started realizing that there's these different paths to achieving fulfillment in your life, happiness in your life, designing your life in a way that you want to live instead of just conforming to the path that has been put out in front of you by society. Uh, I was programmed at a young age that you follow this path of you do really well in school, all the way through high school, you get good grades. We were not economically advantaged as a family growing up. Uh, so my parents told me, you have to go to college and because we don't have money to send you, you have to get a scholarship. So I worked really hard. I got an academic scholarship and that put me through college. And I was just on this path that had been programmed for me because I just thought that's the way it has to be. Generally speaking, humans like formulas. We like to know that if you put A plus B together, you will get C. Don't believe me? When was the last time you Googled a recipe? We like that feeling that the path we're on is guaranteed a positive result, even if it's a lie, because let's be honest, I've burned plenty of food to know a good recipe does not make a good meal. Now, take an insecure middle school student, someone who's just getting on their feet, trying to figure out who they are as a person. They got their parents expecting them to get good grades, right? Why? Well, it's obvious. Because if you get good grades, you'll get into a good college. And a good college means you'll get a good and job. And a good job means that you're going to make good money. With that good money, you can buy a good house. And a good car. The more people I talk to, I find out that it was the same for them. And I don't, I don't blame my parents for that. They were sold this lie as well, that you have to find this one formula, this is one size fits all, and this is the recipe for success in life. It's the only way that you're going to be happy. We want a better life for you than we had. We didn't go to college, and because of that, we you know, had our blue-collar jobs. And that was my mentality prior to permaculture. When I got into permaculture, I realized, no, you can design your life completely different. I started seeing what other people in the permaculture community were doing with creating their own businesses. So if you're thinking to yourself, wait a second, people who study permaculture are learning about gardening. What does that have to do with their life and businesses? Well, then you, like a lot of people, might still be a little confused as to what permaculture actually is. Let's go back to Wikipedia. Permaculture is a system of agricultural and social design principles centered... Did you catch it? I'll play it one more time. Permaculture is a system of agricultural and social design principles centered around simulating or directly utilizing the patterns and features observed in natural ecosystems. Permaculture is a way of designing more than just a garden. The idea behind it is that when we look to the world around us, the forest, the trees, the animals, there are systems in place, formulas, that have worked for thousands and thousands of years. They're proven 
recipes that, although still can end up burning, <laughs> generally speaking, will work when applied to other problems. So Dan looked at his own life and now, through the eyes of a permaculture student, realized he had been following one formula, recipe, or system that was designed by someone else. The career provides because it's there. It's, it's an automatic structure that someone else has already developed and put a lot of work into. And the person going into that career has that system already in place. And they obviously add some kind of value. And in, in exchange for that value, they receive value back generally in the form of income. When we think about the village on the hill, Big John was giving value in the form of time and strength. The value he was getting? Money. When it came to Dan, he was giving value and receiving value as a police officer. In, in my last five years, I was a detective and I served um, in major crimes persons cases, which is basically people who have been injured and sometimes violently or because they didn't have their own voice, like children or elderly. I was able to go in there and provide help for them to get them out of a bad situation and also take a person who is violating their rights, uh, doing harm to other people and putting them in jail where they were no longer able to do that. So there was a lot of value in that, I believe, to the community. Dan was giving his time and his energy and expertise to help people. That was the value he gave. The value he got, well, obviously he got paid. The thing most people think of with value is financial value. Um, I was obviously compensated for my time. There was a lot of good financial extraction. It wasn't necessarily up front in the form of the, of the paycheck. The paycheck was never big, but the other financial components such as retirement and um, medical benefits, etc., were pretty good. And Dan also got a lot out of helping people. But there was one major change in his life that made him decide to change his systems. I guess the older my son was getting, like time was beginning, time was getting more precious to me each day. So the value that I was putting on my time was always growing, but my income was not growing in relation to that. So that was a contributing factor. In life, there are many forms of currency. The most obvious is the one that we use to pay for groceries. But time, time is a currency that is limited. We can never get any more of it. And as Dan's son grew older, he realized that the time he would have to spend with his son, well, that was ever shrinking. And so the amount of money he was making was no longer worth the same because the time it cost to get felt more and more expensive. And so instead of hauling buckets, it was time to build a pipeline. The entrepreneur has to go and create an entire new structure, an entire new system. And it's much more work. It's much more difficult. But in that pursuit, you become in charge of your destiny, your life. You're not having to uh, adhere to someone else's rules or schedule. That's all I wanted to do with my life. I, I realized I just want to do this full time. I want to raise food for my family and I want to do it where I can produce extra food to, to feed neighbors and other people in our community and develop an income stream from that as well to not only just pay for our costs, but also to have profit from it as well. The idea of being an entrepreneur, growing his profit, it appealed to Dan, but there were even more reasons pushing him towards farming. During my studies and exploring permaculture, I found out all the problems that we have in our current food system, and not just from a fragility standpoint, but also from the standpoint of quality. I had no idea that 
the food we were buying from the grocery store was just so poor and full of toxins. I, it was completely unbeknownst to me. I thought, you know, by buying something, you know, at the grocery, you know, healthy, like the salads in the produce section or something like that, that I was doing right. And what I didn't know is anything about how modern agriculture was spraying all of our food, all the chemicals and GMOs and all that. So it was a really big awakening experience discovering all these problems. Learning about all this was really pushing Dan forward. But then came the straw that broke the camel's back. During that time, we actually ran into a little bit of health crisis at home due to some of the foods we were eating. My son actually developed a lot of digestive issues that actually led to a medical problem. I went through a lot of uh, guilt over that because I knew it was a result of the food decisions we had been making. And, And that was also the next phase in our turning point of really, really driving us to live to this lifestyle, knowing that we're not going to be able to get the food that we want that meets my standards by any other means other than if I do it myself. Dan now had a mission, figure out a way to set up his life so that he could be much more in control of his family and what he was feeding them. But this wasn't easy. You see, at the time, they were living in Atlanta. It's difficult to grow a lot of food when you're living in the city. And on top of that, Dan and his wife were living in an HOA. He had to fight just to plant a garden in his own property. But Dan and his wife, their careers were both there. He was a police officer. They couldn't just up and leave. They were stuck. And they might have stayed stuck for a while if it weren't for an incredible opportunity. The catalyst that really enabled us to make the big change from me leaving the police department to getting into the homesteading lifestyle was my wife's job. She got a big promotion at work, getting a big income boost, but she was also uh, getting a position where she could work remotely. Her new boss told her, you can live anywhere you want as long as you be near an airport. So you're told you can live anywhere you want. And of course, the obvious choice, you pick? Idaho. We wanted to leave Atlanta. We did not want to be raising our family in the suburbs of Atlanta. It was just not a good cultural fit for us. It was not um, my insights with the police department there also kind of turned me off uh, from a uh, from a societal uh, Basically, we didn't want to be having an urban or suburban lifestyle. We knew we wanted to have a more rural, um, peaceful setting to raise our family, one that was more conducive for having a homeschool environment and raising our own food. So we wanted to leave Atlanta. And in particular, we had our sights set on North Idaho. We had visited several times and Uh, There's a strong community of self-sufficiency and um, and home food production and homeschooling. A big key factor, Idaho has really good homeschooling laws, or I I should say lack thereof. It's really unregulated and they give so much trust to the parents to do the job right for themselves. Uh, So that was a really big turn on for us. We We set our sights on North Idaho. Because there was a large part of me that did not want to leave the police department. I started there, I was 22 years old, so I was very young. It was actually the only full-time job I've ever had in my life was there. I had uh, progressed through the career. I worked patrol for five years, and I had done really well in that and received a lot of accolades. And then got promoted into the detective division, and I was working my way up through there as well. There was so much ahead of me career-wise there. When I went to the chief of police to resign, I was shaking, noticeably just upset. 
cheeks are passing. What's wrong? You know, he he had been a mentor to me in a lot of capacities over the last couple of years at the police department. We had developed a good relationship, and he knew there's something profoundly wrong with me. I told him I, I felt like I was really letting him down. I was letting the apartment down, leaving that behind. So it was really a difficult transition. We're about to jump into Dan's business and learn how this stay-at-home dad, who's homeschooling his son and keeping the house, is also making $2,000 a year off his farm. But first, let's hear a word from our sponsors. Today's episode of Homesteady is brought to you by Freight Farms. The people at Freight Farms want to help you grow food anywhere with help from the Leafy Green Machine. The Leafy Green Machine is a fully assembled vertical hydroponic farming system that is built inside a 40-foot shipping container. Now, why would you go building a hydroponic farm in a shipping container? Well, because it means you can grow food anywhere, anytime. Lettuce herbs, and hearty greens at a commercial scale in any climate or any location. In the middle of a city, in the middle of winter, you could be running your very own farm. The Leafy Green Machine makes it easy for any individual, community, or organization to grow farm-fresh produce year-round. If you want to learn more about freight farms, first off, listen to the hydroponic episode we did recently on the Homesteady podcast, where we shared their story. Then head over to FreightFarms.com and learn all about the Leafy Green Machine and what it could do for your farm dreams. Having a hard time getting your farm started? Freight Farms is here to help. They have a very handy business plan startup guide designed to make it easier for you to put together a farm business plan, something I remember doing that was pretty confusing my first time around. Learn more about the Leafy Green Machine and get the farm business plan startup guide all at FreightFarms.com slash Homesteady. So Dan quits his job at the police department. They move just a few days later. But then it takes them a long time to actually get onto their homestead property. About two years. You can imagine the frustration. He moved to North Idaho so he could homestead, and he has to wait another two years before they find and move on to the right property. When the wait was finally over... Dan couldn't wait to get started. Like, he literally couldn't wait at all. Yeah, so we jumped right away. And when I say right away, I mean, like, day two, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, we had layup on the property. Jumping in on food production was, I was so excited about it. I I just jumped in with both feet. So moving day was Saturday. We were bringing in the boxes and all that. Um, and we didn't finish until Saturday night. So I don't really count that as day one. We weren't really <laughs> moved in. Moved in. Uh, Sunday, I got the call from the livestock breeder from whom we were purchasing the sheep. She said, I can come tomorrow. And that's the only day I can deliver them. <laughs> and so Sunday, we, were, we spent the day building, uh, putting up fence and getting ready to bring in livestock, which it was so stressful because I, I just thought, I don't know, I'd have at least a week to settle in, but not the case. So it was literally our second full day on the home set that the sheep was being dropped off. Oh man, that's crazy. <laughs> have you ever moved before? I'm sure you've moved at least once in your life. And so you know how crazy moving is. Your entire life is in boxes, in rooms where it doesn't belong, you can't find the toilet paper when you need it, and now, throw into that mix, sheep. Can you picture the scene? The moving truck pulls up, and the guy's like, hey, where do you want me to put all these boxes? You're like, careful with that, that's the television. Where does the couch go? Where do you think the couch goes? Okay, where do you want me to put these sheep? I'm not sure why our moving guy had such a thick New York accent all the way in North Idaho. But it was awesome, too. I mean, it it, um, it, it lit a fire under me. Like, if, if it was one of those things where 
I waited until I was absolutely ready. I would have been probably putting it off for a long time thinking, oh, I'm not quite ready yet. It was, okay, they're coming tomorrow. It's showtime. It's time <laughs> to get going and we're going to do the best we can with it. And it may not be perfect, but it's going to be something. And I really think that was, in hindsight, it was the best course rather than trying to wait for perfection. Dan's the kind of guy who does well with a little bit of a push because he finds that sometimes the fear will hold him back from doing what he really wants to. And when it came to starting a homestead business, the fear did hold him back. I knew eventually down the road, this is going to be an income stream for me. That was, that was, that was part of the plan. But again, I didn't affect that plan until later. It was partially due to fear, fear of failure, uh, fear of the unknown, the difference between entrepreneurship and um, you know, working at the corporation, the corporation has that path for you. Everything's already in place. And all you do is, you know, you're, you, you fulfill your job description and the entrepreneur position, you have to create all this. So being new to it, it was, it was pretty scary. So I kind of, I guess, mentally put that off. He put it off for a while. But of course, we're interviewing him about his homestead business. So yes, the time came when Dan decided to take the leap. Just to preface again, this is the beginning of our journey. This is our second season raising animals, livestock for food production for that we sell. I don't um, want to come off sounding like, you know, we've got this all figured out. So with that out of the way, the number one enterprise that I focus on, and this really comes from my personal passion. I, I like sheep. I have chosen that to be our primary enterprise, raising grass-fed lamb. Grass-fed lamb. Cute, cuddly, delicious. I sent an email out to everyone I knew that lived in the area that may be of possible interest. All the people on the list and... One friend actually said, yeah, I'll, I'll take a half a lamb. That's how it starts. Your very first sale. And boy, does it feel good. Especially when it's not like your mom or dad. <laughs> that said, Dan's dad did help with the next sale. My father, he has a egg selling business. He, and so he has egg customers. So he forwarded the email on to his egg customers. One of his egg customers said, yeah, I could use a lamb. There was one other person forwarded it to another friend and they bought a lamb. So my first year, I, I raised four lambs and... I sold two of them, two of them we kept for ourselves. Dan was really excited to sell two lambs his first year. But the next season, he wanted to grow it even bigger. And so he got really creative with his marketing. There's a local food farmer advocacy group uh, in our region, and they were hosting an event over the winter. It was a Know Your Farmer, Know Your Food event where they allowed farmers to come set up um, as vendors at the event where people can go around. Yeah. If you had products to sell, you could kind of like a farmer's market. But generally that time of year, there's not a lot of product to be sold, especially in our northern climate here. Um, but for me, I, again, I didn't have a product to hand over to someone at the time, but I figured this would be a good opportunity to get our name out there in the community a little bit and potentially take pre-orders. Dan went into the second season armed with some knowledge. He knew that last year when he was trying to sell his lamb, people kept telling him the same objection. One problem I found when I was trying to sell the lamb last year was people didn't know how to cook lamb. That was the objection I was getting from people that were kind of interested. They, they let me know, hey, I'm kind of interested, but I don't know what to do it. What do you do with lamb? You know, I, okay, I know how to do some lamb chops from, from the grocery, but obviously there's more to lamb than lamb chops. I am a, a cooking enthusiast. I'm a, a home cook. I spend a lot of time preparing nice meals for my family. That's I, another part of the homesteading benefit to me that the, the payoff is what we serve in the kitchen, right? That's what this is all ultimately about is serving the food at the end. So, um, so I spent the winter cooking different r lamb recipes, filming it. This is no ordinary lamb chop meal. 
The chops came from a lamb that we raised on our homestead. This was the first time I ever This is one of Dan's cooking videos. You can find them at his YouTube channel. Just search the grass-fed homestead. In this video, Dan shows how to cook a grass-fed lamb chop. And I gotta say, it looks amazing. I take my chops out of the refrigerator about an hour before cooking so they can come to room temperature. Just look how beautiful these chops are. They do look beautiful. I let my chops rest, coming up in temperature with salt and pepper on either side. Dan's marketing idea was a fantastic one. He found that one of his problems with selling his product was that people didn't know what to do with it. He could have whined and moaned about this. Why don't people know how to cook lamb? Everyone should know how to cook lamb. Instead, he educated his consumer. And that is a huge role of the slow food movement. Teaching people about where their food comes from and what the heck to do with it. Look at the great color on these. I think I should have warned you to eat before you listen to this episode. My apologies. I'm feeling kind of nervous as I'm waiting for this to finish. I've never felt like I've had to get a meal right more than I do right now. Just in honor of all the sacrifice. In this video, Dan takes his family, sits down to the dinner table, and records the reactions of the first time they tried eating the lamb that they raised themselves. He starts with his young son. Hi, little buddy. Mm. You like it? I like it. Good. Here it is. This is everything we've worked for. Everything we're working toward. Can you cut? Wow. It's really good and it's so tender. Awesome. Perfect. Awesome. This was a really clever marketing strategy that Dan thought up. Go to the market, show the videos of him cooking this amazing meal. We all know when we watch Food Network, seeing someone who knows what they're doing with a piece of meat, it inspires us to try it ourselves. Dan figured if he brought it to the market, showed people what to do with it, he'd have some new customers. And so did it work? So um, I set up a little table and I brought a computer monitor with me and I had a loop on there, a video I had taken of me cooking different lamb products. Hopefully engage customers in conversation and let them know I can provide this resource to you as one of my customers. I can teach you how to cook this. Uh, so kind of open that conversation. And a lot of people stop by, they watch the video, but not a lot of people engage to the point where they actually signed up. But I did get um, two customers that way. I want you to think of a little stream, maybe a little brook you played in as a kid. That stream flows its way into a river somewhere. And that river winds itself to a bay which reaches out into an ocean. Slow food is slow. This first sale for Dan, it might have felt small, but eventually that tiny little brook found its way to a small river. And then also some more from uh, word of mouth, uh, just other people forwarding the message. So I did pre-sales, I sold six lambs that way, and I actually cut off sales at that point. The little stream became a brook. Dan cut off sales. He sold out. And that is an amazing feeling when you're running your first business. Six sales or 60, you still sold out. So I, I actually cut it off there. And since then, I've actually been turning people away. I've, I've turned more people away now since I've cut off sales than I actually sold lamb to. Um, so it, what that tells me is there is a market here. There is a demand. People want this. And I can't service this demand yet. Did you catch that? There is the spirit of the homestead entrepreneur. He said, I can't service that demand yet. Dan's making plans. He wants to take this river, run it into the bay, 
maybe someday an ocean of a grass-fed lamb farm. We're going to break down Dan's numbers, find out what he's making from this lamb, how he makes the rest of that $2,000 figure, and leave you with some parting advice after a quick break. So there are two new changes to the Homesteady Pioneer program that I wanted to let you know about. The first, we have a very handy one-click download for all our bonus podcasts. That means the minute you become a Homesteady Pioneer, you head into the library, you click on podcasts, up at the top, it says, click here to download all the bonus episodes, and boom, you get a zip file, downloads to your computer, all 20 bonus episodes. The second change to the program, we've added a forum for members only. It's a troll-free environment where there's lots of homesteaders with really good advice on all kinds of homesteading topics, and most exciting, we're going to start bringing our guests into the forum. So if you'd like to ask Dan questions about his business, about the sheep that he raised, or what he does in his homestead, or what it's like to live in Idaho, he's going to be in there for the next week answering your questions. So if you're already a pioneer, head over to the website, click on Pioneers Forum, and fire some questions away for Dan in the special thread for this episode. And if you're not, head over to thisishomesteady.com, click on Shop, and then click on the Pioneer Program. We look forward to seeing you in the forum. So selling out a sheep, how much money did that put in Dan's pocket? What I expect to get gross by the end of the year off of these lambs is around 1750. Dan didn't have the exact figures yet because it's based on the gross hanging weight and the animals weren't grossly hanging yet. On top of the lamb money, he also made some money from pastured poultry. So now it was time to get down to brass tacks. Whatever that means. What are brass tacks and what are they used for? Why do you get down to them? I got some Googling to do. Anyways, I wanted to know from Dan, are you profitable? In the strictest sense of the term, so by the strictest accountant Mike uh, terms, the money you're, and time you're putting in for the money and time you're getting out, we're not talking about lifestyle, we're not talking about any of those other forms of currency, just strict dollars and cents. Mm-hmm. Is your current homestead side business profitable? I expect a very small profit by the end of the year with... I like Dan's dog answer to that question. Did you hear him? He said, no. Don't believe me? Here, I'll play the tape again. Listen. Is your current homestead side business profitable? See, the pup knows what's going on. But Dan, I think, had a hard time at first with this question. Just the cost associated with putting into the animals this year, I expect a, a very, very small profit. And when I'm talking about, let me, let me start this over. I'm kind of <laughs> talking in circles here for a second. Okay. When Dan said he was profitable, frankly, I didn't believe him. I know how much all this stuff costs and all the time. And then I think Dan didn't believe his own answer. I think he just needed a minute to figure out what I was really getting at, which is when you figure in all the costs and all your time. Are you profitable? <clears throat> Is it profitable? If you um, look at what my costs are for feed, uh, if you look at it under that lens, yes, it is profitable. It, it, it gets a little bit trickier to calculate. Because... What Dan was trying to say was that at first, if you just look at the feed and the inputs directly into the animal, that yes, he was going to make a small profit. But like we all know, Animals require more than just feed from the store. You know, I put in permanent fencing this year as a permitter. How long is that going to last? How, how many years do you amateurize that? Um, so it, it, it's kind of, it gets a little sticky when you start 
putting those the upfront costs of buying the electric netting, the energizer, the battery, water troughs, feed trough, uh, the lumber. I've built a lot of structures. Um, now we were getting down to brass tacks. Which, by the way, theory is brass tacks is a term that comes from tacks used to measure cloth in precise units, which is exactly what Accountant Mike wants us to do when trying to rule things profitable or not. Brass tacks. Uh, but if you add those in, I would say right now, the way things stand, no, we are operating at a financial loss because of the cost of getting things started. Okay, so you're thinking, thanks a lot, Aust. You're doing an interview with someone who's losing money. Why are we listening to this? Guys, it's reality. When you start your homestead side hustle, chances are you're not going to be profitable in your first year, your second year. The fact is, the more you try to grow your homestead, the more money you put into infrastructure, it might be a decade before you make any money. But that's not why we start these homestead side hustles. The point of a side hustle is not necessarily to run a profitable business in the accountant Mike terms. And that's why I asked Dan the next most important question, one that I'm going to ask everybody in this series. Now, pulling back from not the strict dollars and cents and time in and time out, more from what we've been talking about, about building systems where your value goes in and the value goes out. Is your homestead business, big picture, all the factors that you look at, is it profitable? Yes. Our homestead, with incorporating all the different aspects we're talking about here, is profitable if we look beyond just financial capital. And here, I totally believe Dan's answer was spot on, especially when you look at it through the eyes of someone who has studied permaculture. This takes us all the way back to the beginning of our podcast, where we talked about building a better system. Remember Claudius and Big John? As a police officer, Dan gave and received value. But to him, it felt like hauling buckets. Now he's decided to go the entrepreneurial route, and that means building a pipeline. And as we know from the village on the hill, it takes time before the water starts to flow. For the entrepreneur, at least in my experience, up front, there's a lot of value in with time, energy, emotion. And on the, on the output side, there isn't a lot of income coming up. At least initially. When Dan says there's not a lot of income coming out, boy, did he mean it. I emailed him because it's been a while since I did this interview. I wanted to find out how his numbers looked compared to what his estimates were. He was estimating to gross seventeen fifty on lambs. When all was said and done, he was just shy of $1,000. Their harvest weight was much smaller than they expected. He explained in his email that a few different things went wrong. Feeder lambs he bought were smaller than the previous year, and they had a really bad drought this summer. Again, we're creating a system from scratch. We're developing something that wasn't here. And there's there's so much that needs to go into that to build that foundation to get the to get to the point where we are extracting income from it. My experience has been a, there's been a lot of upfront and not a lot coming out yet in the form of income. However, there are other forms of capital that are being extracted. The fact that Dan hasn't earned a lot of money from this doesn't get him down because he looks to more than just the money to see whether or not it's a profitable experience. Control over one's own life is the first thing that comes to mind. In, in our case, having a son, um, I don't have to take him to a daycare or drop him off somewhere um, to have childcare or bring in a nanny or anything like that. I can work around his schedule when he's awake or when he's not or, or what his needs are. I can be there for him when he needs me. And when you watch Dan's YouTube channel, 
you can see just how much he's enjoying taking advantage of this. And little buddy's gonna demonstrate closing the main gate. I always do that. You do always do that. It's one of little buddy's job to open the gate in the morning and close it in the eve. Sometimes I don't do it because sometimes it gets too dark for, for me to do, do it and I can't do it because I'm, a, I'm afraid that I might not have a flashlight. Maggie sure does like me. She does. Yeah. She snips me. Look, she looks like she's going to drink the Annabelle's She's milk. trying to bum off of Annabelle there. I don't think Annabelle's going to like that. She's cute, isn't she? I spent the morning working on the perimeter electric fencing. Little Buddy and I just took a quick lunch break, and I thought it'd be really nice to get the sheep out on some grass. Come on, girls. Okay, little buddy, open it up. When you watch dance videos, you see a father and son matching cowboy hats, working in beautiful northern Idaho, green grass as far as the eye can see. A dad teaching his son how to handle livestock, how to work with sheep and chickens, taking lunch breaks together. There's a sad universal truth that all parents know. And it's that these beautiful little people that you're surrounded with, they grow up. Your time with them is limited. And those little people that they are right now, they'll never be that again. You only get one chance to spend as much time with that little person as you possibly can. Life is complicated. We can't spend every minute with our kids. We have commutes and nine to fives. We have bosses and bills. The truth is, as parents, there is time that we have to spend carrying buckets that we would rather be spending with our kids. We can dwell on the fact that our kids are growing up and be sad about it and wish we could spend more time with them. And we can keep hauling the same old buckets back and forth up to the village on the hill. Or we can start to make plans, draw up some designs, come up with a different kind of system, a way to change our life. It's still gonna be work, but if it'll help us redesign our life to be able to spend more time with those that we love and less time carrying water up and down the hill, what are we waiting for? Pipelines don't build themselves. The lesson I've, I've taken away out of this is that um, we're all going to be plugged into a system. We can either go into someone else's or we can design one for ourselves the homesteaders that are listening to this that haven't started yet. They're going to be in a system. How can you, what can you do to encourage them uh, to start designing one that they want? You can choose between these two systems where one, everything is designed for you. A path is laid out for you. It's not necessarily the path that you've designed for your life. And it can be rewarding. I'm not saying it won't be but it may not give you the fulfillment you're seeking. If you choose the other path, it will be harder because the path is not laid out before you. You have to get out the machete and start swinging and cutting the new trail. You have to blaze the new trail. That's harder work. But in that hard work, forcing yourself into uncomfortable situations and overcoming them, and when you come out on the other side, being so much stronger and capable for having done it, that's where real fulfillment comes from as well. So I want to encourage everyone to pursue the life that they want to live, not the life others want to live. Little Buddy and I got a lot of the insulators on for the fencing. We got probably about one-fifth of the way through the project. Watch this. It is time for me to get inside and start dinner so we can eat. Yes. 
I think tomorrow's supposed to rain all day, so I don't know how much we're gonna get done tomorrow. But we'll keep chipping away at it and keep you abreast of the progress. Very special thanks to Dan for sharing his story with us, his numbers, his sweet gorilla chef marketing techniques. If you want to be inspired more by what Dan and his family are doing at the Grassfed Homestead, search Grassfed Homestead in YouTube, or just head to the blog write-up of this episode, and we'll link you there. Speaking of blog post write-up, Alexia, the suburban escapee, does a fantastic write-up of all our episodes where she includes all the links to all the different things we've mentioned. And uh, in today's episode, we'll have a few different videos you'll want to go check out. Speaking of things to check out, i got to give credit where credit is due. The, s- the story of the village on the hill was based off of a concept that I first heard about from the Survival Podcast. I don't remember which episode... But Jack over there does a fantastic show, and if you're not listening to it, you should go check it out. That basic principle of hauling water by buckets. That's where I first heard of the principle of hauling buckets of water or uh, building a pipeline. And then I just did what, you know, I always do to things and made it a little bit more theatrical. But be sure to check out the Survival Podcast. It's a great show. Don't forget, if you're a homesteady pioneer and you have some questions for Dan about his business or his homestead, he'll be in the Pioneer Forum for the next week answering your questions. Dan also became a homesteady pioneer, so he might be in there even more. Uh, Thanks, Dan, for helping to support this show. We really appreciate it. Special thanks to our homesteady crew who helps on all our productions. Allison, Alexia, Accountant Mike. Homesteady is produced by my wife, Kay, and myself. I'm Aust, and I'm homesteady. If you are too, be sure to let us know. Hashtag your social media posts. I am homesteady. And until next time, remember, the road is rocky. Make homesteady. This episode is part two of a 10-part series all about making money from your homestead. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss any of the other parts of this series, including the episode coming out soon where we learn about making money with, I hate to say it, goats. This year alone, I've sold right at $3,000 worth of goats. $3,000? $3,000? That's not chump change. But are they worth the risk of bringing these maniac creatures onto your property? They become mischievous. Subscribe so you don't miss that or any other episode in this series.